I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Okay. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. You ready? I am ready. You have a drink? Yes. A little drink poo. Okay. Here we are. Episode six. Recording. Back in the closet. Back in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to do a little bit of shorter episode today because this is a holiday week. Recording this on Christmas Eve Eve for us here. <laughs> so we're going to switch it up today. And instead of doing a longer interview with a special guest, we wanted to touch on something that's popped up in the news in the last week or so that's really important. And we thought this would be a good opportunity for us to bring it to your attention, discuss it, unpack it a little bit. And then we'll be back in two weeks from now with a longer episode. Yeah, and a really fascinating episode too, a new style um, where we went to uh, New England Wildlife Center uh, to record a live episode. Yeah, it was really fun. We mic'd up the vets there and you'll get to hear real-time audio of them working on some of their wildlife cases. It was so fun. I'm really excited for that one. So that's going to take us a little longer to edit down and get out. So in the meantime... Today, we're going to talk about coronavirus, specifically in wildlife. Good old COVID-19. Good old COVID-19. <laughs> and you may have seen this in the headlines in recent news, but basically a mink in Utah is now the first known case of coronavirus in a wild animal. So this is the first time we have a confirmed case of coronavirus, sars cov 2 in wildlife. So yeah. that's a big deal. Basically, if you haven't seen this in the news and you haven't read the article, I'll give you a quick rundown here of what we know. And then we're going to take a step back and sort of unpack the steps of how did we get here? So you may have seen the headline in recent national news, which was a mink in Utah is the first known case of the coronavirus in a wild animal. And so this is, this is a big deal. So basically what happened is back in December 11th of this year, so just a couple weeks ago, the USDA released an email where they confirmed that their National Veterinary Services Lab had actually confirmed the SARS-CoV-2 virus in a nasal swab collected from a free-ranging wild mink that was sampled in Utah. And they said, quote, to our knowledge, this is the first free-ranging native wild animal confirmed with SARS-CoV-2. And now, just so we're not getting tripped up by the nomenclature, just a reminder that when we refer to SARS-CoV-2, that's actually the name of the virus that causes COVID-19. So basically, COVID-19 is the name of the disease that results from SARS-CoV-2 virus. So just to clear that up, if that's... Um, if that's confusing. So basically, when we talk about SARS-CoV-2, we're basically talking about COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Now, given this first report of the coronavirus in a wild animal, in a wild mink, we have to take a step back and understand how did this happen? How did we get here? How did we get here? <laughs> yeah. The story starts in the Netherlands back in April of this year. So April 2020, right at kind of the beginning of this whole pandemic, 
and it was on April 26th, we got the first news of a confirmed coronavirus infection in farmed mink on two different farms in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So that this was kind of step one, is our, our first report of coronavirus in farmed mink in the Netherlands back in April. And at that time, they said that they believed the virus had been spread from infected workers on that farm into the mink. And they also said at that time that there was no reason to believe it had spread the other way around, i.e. going from the mink into humans. Right. So they were kind of hoping this was an isolated thing and that they could control it pretty easily. But then about a month later, so now this is May 2020, the Minister of Agriculture released some new and slightly more concerning information in which they wrote that they had done some recent investigations after those initial positive mink that they found. And in those investigations, they concluded that it was plausible that an employee of one of the infected farms was infected with SARS-CoV-2 from the mink. And also they said that they were investigating the role of feral cats in potentially transmitting the virus between farms because they had said that their preliminary studies had shown that the virus strains on the two different infected mink farms were very similar. And on one of those infected farms, they actually caught some of the feral farm cats and found that those cats actually had antibodies against the virus. Um, And actually three of the 11 cats that they tested had SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. So basically, in the course of a month, they went from just having these first couple reports of positive mink, and then a month later, it was like, oops, turns out uh, we think mink actually can transmit it back to humans, which we didn't think was possible a month ago. Oh, and also, maybe feral cats are just spreading it from farm to farm. (laughs) So there's that. Feral cat vectors. Yeah. Love it. So that was all a little concerning. So that was all happening in the Netherlands. So now let's talk about Denmark, which is the next part of the story. Yeah, things blow up a little bit more here with Denmark. Yeah, things get a little bit more, a little crazier. So Denmark is the world's largest mink producer. And they had their first positives for coronavirus in mink um, back in June 2020. So, So remember... April, Netherlands had their first report. June, now Denmark is reporting that their mink are also coming up positive. And so basically the virus continues to spread in that whole country. Over the next few months, it kind of becomes a bigger and bigger problem until November of this year. So just last month, things really got concerning and a whole new layer gets added to this story. They were studying this virus in the mink in Denmark, and basically full-length genome sequencing that they were doing revealed that there was actually a novel virus variant in those mink. And then that novel variant of the coronavirus actually appeared in the local human community. So that was alarming. And... And and that was likely sp- spread from the mink back to humans and then spread amongst humans. Yeah, that's what they were thinking. So basically, we had the 
the coronavirus being spread from people originally into the mink and then from the mink back into people. And but then, it had mutated. Yeah. And in that process of being passed back and forth between the mink and the people, it had mutated. Yeah. Which is like, that's where things get really dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And what was even more concerning is when they studied this now variant mutated version of the virus, they actually found that it had decreased sensitivity to antibodies, meaning that this new mutated strain could potentially be less um, less able to be controlled by a vaccine mm-hmm. or any vaccines that we produce would potentially be less effective against this particular strain. Which could be just utterly disastrous for everyone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what people would need at the end of, like, coming towards the end of this pandemic. And we have a vaccine ready. Right. Oh, guess what? It mutated and the and now the vaccine now don't is work. not effective. Right. So obviously this is... That had... would be soul-crushing this... and yeah. crippling. Yeah. So major red flags, kind of like panic button being hit. Yeah, sound the klaxon. Yeah, just... <laughs> So in response to this, they knew they had to really get this under control. And that is what prompted Denmark on November 4th to announce that they were actually going to cull all of the mink in their country, their entire herd, which is something like 17 million mink. And the mink industry is approximately 1% of their GDP. Yeah. So that's a big deal for that country to just, just wipe out all of that. It's a sad scenario for everyone involved. It's it's sad for the mink. Sa- it's really sad for the mink. I mean, ultimately, they're the ones that really, you know, they had a tough life to begin with. And, and I'm sure they're, they're humanely euthanized, but that's, that's yeah. rough. Yeah. And then all the economic losses, all the families who depended on that income as their livelihood, they're affected. So, yeah, yeah just not great all around. So now how does this relate to the wild mink in Utah that they found? So... While all this was going on, here in the U.S., we also have mink farms. Definitely not as big of a thing as it is in Denmark, but, there, you know, we have some. And so it was back in August of this year, August 17th, was our first report of infected farmed mink in the U.S. So just like overseas, they were starting to have reports in April, May. It took us a little longer, but... In August, that's when we started reporting our first farmed mink coming up positive. This was when the USDA National Veterinary Services Lab announced that they had confirmed cases of, again, the SARS-CoV-2 virus in mink at two different farms in Utah. And the thing that kind of clued them in that something was happening was that these farms, they were seeing an unusually large number of mink dying. And when they went back and did necropsies on several of those affected mink that had died, they were able to confirm the diagnosis that, yep, these mink did have SARS-CoV-2, um, again, the virus that causes COVID-19. Yeah, and and so alarm bells start ringing of a potential similar disastrous risk of what had occurred in Europe. Yeah. And so now because we knew that we had these two farms in Utah that had mink that were positive for the virus, USDA, in collaboration with CDC and a couple other partners, they went to those farms where they had the positive mink and they started doing surveillance in wildlife around those farms. Mm-hmm. So they were 
looking to see if there was basically kind of any spillover from those captive farmed mink into wildlife surrounding the farms. Yeah, or or maybe some feral cats. <laughs> right. Yeah, basically they were looking at kind of different uh, carnivores and things in the area, species that they suspected would be susceptible. And we'd get back to that in a minute. And when they found that one positive mink, and again, they detected the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, it was in a, I believe it was in a nasal, nasal yeah, it was swab. in a nasal swab that they collected um, and did PCR testing on that. So they also sequenced the viral genome from that sample that they got from that wild mink. And basically they found that it was almost indistinguishable from the virus that they obtained from the farmed mink. So there, the assumption is that the virus spread from the farmed mink, the farmed captive mink, into the wild mink. And that's a critical point in understanding the dynamics of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. In their email that the USDA put out, they did say that there's currently no evidence that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is circulating or has become established in the wild populations surrounding the mink farm. Which is good. Which is good. But in, in my mind, like having worked with wildlife, if you detect one instance of something, it's almost undoubtedly going to be true that there's another occurrence of it. For Whether sure. it happened, it, it had already happened or it will happen. For sure. And they didn't say how many animals they tested. So it's hard to know. Right. But, and animals yeah. move quite a bit. So one other thing I forgot to mention is... So all of those millions of mink that they had to cull in Denmark, it turns out that even though they've culled all those animals, the fiasco is not over. And now they're just dealing with a fresh hell because <laughs> a couple days ago, some major news source put out a story and the story was titled, Denmark to dig up millions of dead mink after botched COVID-19 cull. <laughs> <laughs> so... Basically, just when you thought it couldn't get worse, it got way worse. So It's like classic 2020. Just so 2020. So basically, the Danish government uh, decided, they voted that they had to exhume the bodies of like five and a half million of these animals that they had culled um, because there was concerns that they had been buried in a way that was potentially going to contaminate local water supplies oh imagine that imagine that you have millions of rotting carcasses that are improperly buried they were originally supposed to incinerate the bodies but i think it turns out that there was just they were so overwhelmed with the by the sheer volume of animals that they needed to deal with that they just yeah kind of just started they're like oh we'll just bury it real quick it'll be fine you know just push some dirt over oh, it oh yeah six feet under it's all good yeah so they kind of just rushed it and didn't do it properly um it's like something out of a horror movie. The last thing you might need is, uh, especially here in 2020, is all of a sudden you have, like, zombie mink well, that's, rising yeah. from the dead. <laughs> well, that's exactly what the article said. Uh, I actually wrote down the quote because it was kind of, I don't want to say it was funny. It's a horrible situation. But uh, the quote was, and then the mink corpses began to reappear, pushed up through the soil by gases released as their bodies decomposed. Danish newspapers started calling them zombie mink, haunting the government as it grappled with the resurgence of COVID-19 among the human population. So 2020. So 2020. Zombie mink. So fitting. So they're still 
dealing with that over over there. So pray for Denmark. Yeah. My God. The Danes, we pray our hearts go out to you. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about all the zombie mink. Yeah. And like I'm wondering, as I think a lot of our listeners are probably wondering, why mink? Like why a muscled species? Like why are they such a huge concern for the transmission and infection of SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And the question of how do we know or how do we determine or what makes a certain species susceptible to SARS-CoV-2, um, to answer that, we kind of have to understand how the virus itself is interacting with cells. And so... Let's get molecular. So let's, <laughs> let me try to break it down without getting too crazy um, but in a way that's hopefully easy to understand. So basically, the coronavirus. They are called coronaviruses because the surface of the virus is covered with all of these little spiky proteins that almost look like studs or jewels on a crown. This virus gets its name the coronavirus because corona is Latin word for crown. And all these little proteins that are sticking out from around the surface of the virus are called spike proteins, which is a fitting name. So it's these spike proteins on the surface of the virus that allow it to actually infect cells. How, how does that occur? Yeah. So these little spike proteins, they bind to the surface of the cell. And then once they bind, that helps it, helps the virus to enter the cell. And then once it's inside the cell, it can replicate and that's what allows it to go on and cause infection, go on and cause COVID-19. On cells, that spike protein on the virus attaches to a receptor called the angiotensin II converting enzyme receptor, or ACE2. And so the cells have these ACE2 receptors on their surface, and the spike protein of the virus binds to that ACE2 receptor. So you can kind of think of it like a lock and a key. So on the surface of the virus, this spike protein is like the key. And then on the surface of the cell, the ACE2 receptors, that's like the lock. So you get, you know, the key goes into the lock and that's what allows the virus to enter the cell. One of the things, one of the major factors in whether or not a species is susceptible to the virus or not is how well their ACE2 receptors, or how well the ACE2 receptors of that particular species, how well it can bind with the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. And the short answer is there's more information coming out all the time about species susceptibility, and we're still trying to figure all of this out. But now tying all this back in, so knowing that mink and potentially ferrets and other members of the mustelid family, knowing that they're all potentially susceptible to this virus, what does that mean for a conservation standpoint? Yeah, and so this is where you get into these issues with, um, you know, we've got an, a case of a wild mink now having 
contracted SARS-CoV-2. That could be an issue for mink, perhaps. I mean, they're a species of least concern. They have got a wide range. Uh, populations are, you know, stable and fine and what have you. But then, you know, what might... Um, and, and maybe we could see this huge epidemic in mink. Possible, but uh, perhaps unlikely, partially because I think of... Um, the mink's uh, natural history, where they're a, a largely solitary animal, um, but there's still some risk there that you could see this, you know, spread throughout mink populations. But what comes to mind as soon as I heard Utah and mink is black-footed ferrets, mm. which are uh, endangered species uh, in that region of uh, the Rocky Mountain West. Um, and black-footed ferrets are of a major concern because their populations are uh, small and limited and even large numbers of them in captive breeding programs mm. currently. So uh, black-footed ferrets were uh, listed as extinct, and um, it wasn't until uh, the late 1980s that a uh, small colony, small population of uh, black-footed ferrets was discovered in Wyoming that oh. they, uh, you know, declared them. Actually, they're not extinct. Here we have some. <laughs> JK. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, which is always like a great, you know, yeah. success story for, for wildlife. Yeah. Go ferrets. Um, as you saw, prairie dogs, which are the primary prey species of black-footed ferrets, decline. You also saw. Really? Ferrets can take down a prairie dog? Yeah. That's, like, what they go after. That's, like, their primary prey. I mean, I've, like, treated prairie dogs in practice. They are no they're joke. Nasty I, they're nasty and terrifying. large. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, black-footed ferrets even more terrifying. Wow. So you have this conservation issue with black-footed ferrets where they're, they're on the brink of recovery now. I mean, you've got um, animals that are in captive breeding programs, um, like the Black-Footed Ferret Conservation Center in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, also at different zoos like um, in Toronto and, and other places. And they're, they're breeding these ferrets in captivity, releasing them into the wild to sort of recolonize these different um, pieces of habitat um, across North America. But as you, if you can imagine um, SARS-CoV-2 transmitting between humans and mink and mink, you know, infecting one another across their habitat if there's a chance that this could reach these wild populations, it could be disastrous. It could be, yeah. Um, but, you know, kind of taking it back again to the, uh, the onset of um, COVID-19 and the issues related to that, as soon as it was discovered that, you know, COVID-19 could, and SARS-CoV-2 could in infect, you know, mink and ferrets, the folks working with the captive breeding programs of black-footed ferrets really started to get concerned about this and implemented some measures to prevent them infecting their their breeding populations. So the people that were working with and raising these ferrets, they were concerned that they were potentially going to inadvertently infect exactly their, their precious black-footed ferrets. Yeah, and yeah. precious they are. They're so dang cute with their yeah. little black masks. But that's, that's like a massive impact to a captive breeding program. And um, 
uh, you know, they do these annual releases of ferrets into the wild to bolster these wild populations. And um, I'm, st- I'm not sure if they actually even did any releases this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Just out of caution in case of one, caution. Of, one of theirs was infected and they didn't realize it. So they don't potentially spread that to the rest of the population. Yeah, to the wild populations, yeah. which I think are, you know, somewhere around like 1,500 individuals in yeah, the wild. Yeah, not very many. <laughs> yeah. So given all those concerns, you almost wonder... It'd be great if we had a, a vaccine for these guys. Oh, it's hilarious you mentioned that because they actually started working on that back in the spring when they had the concerns of uh, the impacts of coronavirus on, on the black-footed ferrets. They started experimenting and developing a vaccine, a ferret-specific vaccine. So not the human Not vac- the human one. A, a, their own. Yeah, entirely oh, okay. separate from the human vaccine development. They actually acquired... A purified protein of the spike, right? So the 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 key to the lock, right? Okay, yeah. So they um, acquired purified protein for the spike uh, from a commercial pr- producer. They mixed the liquid protein with an adjuvant, and an adjuvant is a substance that sort of enhances the immune response. This past spring, the first doses were given to um, eighteen ferrets in captivity, all male, all about a year old. Um, and then they followed that up with a booster shot a few weeks later, much like the, you know, the, the current human vaccines are, are working. Um, and then within weeks of that second booster shot, the ferrets um, did show antibodies in the oh, blood cool. as like a, a positive response yeah. to, the, to the vaccine. Now, they're not actively testing the efficacy of the vaccine. Right. They're not going to try to experimentally (laughs) infect these guys. Yeah, let's potentially wipe out all of our uh, uh, captive uh, ferrets. Um, But they feel like it it seems like it might work. Um, And and again, just out of a total abundance of caution of anything you can do to protect this endangered species. Yeah, that's very cool. And they didn't report any weird reactions or side effects that they saw no they, it doesn't seem like there was any side effects uh, nothing so far um they only inoculated 120 out of the 180 uh, did you say they only ferrets. did it in males to start okay to start yeah oh yeah we're always like the <laughs> test species you gotta protect the female uh the female uh, yeah yeah no comment but abortion of the population yeah we're like mostly useless <laughs> <laughs> with ferrets you just yeah maybe you just need one right <laughs> um but yeah they all um as of this fall they had they had really only inoculated 120 of the 180 ferrets um at the uh, black-footed ferret um, conservation center in colorado um and so they left some in, uh, uninoculated unvaccinated just in case, just something, in case crazy. something did go wrong <laughs> yeah. they still had a lot of their yeah. individuals. So probably those remaining individuals were largely female, just again for the yeah the breeding capacity. Yeah. So that's sort of one end of the extreme where you have a potentially susceptible species where if the virus gets into that population, it could really wipe them out and it could directly contribute to an extinction. Yeah, because yeah. you could see like, you know, oh, if some, you know, an animal gets sick and dies like, oh, that's that's terrible. And it is. Um, but when you talk about, geez, if this just if this disease spreads to this population, 
uh, you could just see an entire extinction just based on this and wipe out decades now, decades of work for black-footed ferrets. Yeah, and and the other thing is this has impacts on professionals that are working with wildlife as well. Because if we as people are, are working with a wild species that's potentially susceptible, so any of these mustelids or, you know, big cats. Or bats. Or bats, exactly. If we're working with any of these species, for example, doing capture efforts where we're catching wild animals for sampling, um, transmitters, tagging, anything like that, anytime we're directly coming into contact with any of these potentially susceptible species, we need to be really careful now. You know, maybe we should have always been being careful in the past, but now... You have to be ultra-vigilant. Yeah, ultra-vigilant. Really, and in some cases... Just avoiding the work altogether. Yeah, until we are, you know, vaccinated ourselves, until we get things under control. And that's what happened with a lot of bat work in 2020 is... You know, researchers were just not allowed to conduct their research. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough with loons. You know, we were just given the guidance of, um, you know, just having to wear masks and gloves while handling the birds. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of research got canceled, not just because of um, the issues with coronavirus and, and people and, you know, the logistics of of working during a global pandemic and funding and what have you but just yeah the concern for wildlife yeah there's a lot to consider here so we've kind of come full circle from (laughs) mink in the netherlands (laughs) to everything that's happening here and just wildlife in general and all the complexities of covid19 pandemic and and working with wildlife yeah and it's a fascinating case in point of why wildlife health is so critical not just for wildlife themselves but for human health yep so i'm sure as we go forward there's going to be more reports more news coming out you know unfortunately probably more species more wildlife are going to be popping up as confirmed infected or popping up as zombie mink or just yeah yeah, more zombie (laughs) mink so we're going to try to keep you guys updated on this and, you know, maybe in the future, once things evolve, we'll do another one of these episodes and just kind of keep everyone updated on on what's happening because it's such an important topic. Yeah. Stay safe. Stay healthy, everyone. Let's get through 2020 and move forward with our lives. Yeah. Here's to 2021. And we'll catch you guys after the new year with our episode from New England Wildlife. Maybe a little bit more uplifting than this <laughs> episode. <laughs> yeah. But until then, stay healthy, stay safe. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast.